Isaiah and and uh, some of the highlights of the places in Isaiah which point forward to the coming of Christ. Today we're in Isaiah 52, verses 7 to 10. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The vision that we read about in this passage in Isaiah 52 is the vision of a city. A devastated city. Probably a city that's been being besieged. And there are watchmen on the city walls desperately looking out for some sign of a messenger bringing news. Probably their wait, the idea is that the watchmen are waiting for news of the results of a battle. They've perhaps sent out their army into battle and there's some battle going on out there in some plain somewhere and they're waiting for news of what happened in the battle. And the, uh, the idea is that, that if... If the news is bad, all is lost. And it's only a matter of time before that enemy army will be at their doorstep. And now they don't have any army to defend them. But they're hoping that the news will be good. And then suddenly a messenger appears bringing good news of peace, happiness, comfort, salvation redemption news that the God of Israel indeed is the God of gods and he reigns over all others and the whole city joins in the celebration now this ver- this passage is quoted in Romans chapter 10 as referring to the gospel so we know that this passage is indeed pointing forward to that great day when Christ would come and when the city of mankind, the city of God's people, desperately in need, would finally have their, their um, salvation and their redemption and their victory. So let's look at this vision for a moment in light of the fact that it is fulfilled in Christ. What is this city? What are these waste places of Jerusalem? It, whatever it is, it's, it appears that God has not been coming through for them. 
that it's as if God is powerless. There are promises, but they've come to nothing. And this is, this is the state that we find the people of God at the time of Christ's birth. They have been, they are a devastated people. And we fail to appreciate how devastated the people of God were at this time. They may have had somewhat of a golden age in the days of David, the days of early days of Solomon, but by and large, the history of Israel is a tragic one. And by the time of Christ's birth, God's people, the chosen people, have been through indescribable suffering. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, then followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then the time of the judges, which was not a a time of prospering, and then the time of the kingdom, and shortly after Solomon, the kingdom was divided, and there were many kings, 39 kings total of the two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, 39 kings, 31 of them were evil kings who did not rule well over God's people. And then came the Assyrians that came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and they conquered all of Judah except the city of Jerusalem. And then, not too much Later, the Babylonians came through and conquered what was left. Conquered Jerusalem, smashed it to pieces. They came three times. The last time, they leveled it to the ground. And they took all the people into exile, except a few of the homeless ones that weren't worth bothering with in their estimation. And then they lived in Babylon as foreign prisoners, prisoners in a foreign land and then they went through the process of returning and trying to rebuild the city and the, and the temple which was itself fraught with difficulty and then they were conquered by the Greeks and by the Romans and lived under their tyranny for hundreds of years this is a story of of distress and despair all along they were waiting desperately for news news that their promised salvation had come because in the midst of all this difficulty God had given them through the prophets promises that he would redeem them that he would comfort them we we read about one of these last week in Isaiah chapter 40 and the week before in, in chapter 11 They were, as Simeon is said to have been doing in Luke 2.25, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel, the promised consolation of Israel. It had been so long, 700 years since these promises of Isaiah were given. 700 years. How long, how many times have you waited 700 years for something? It's a long time. Think about that. It's 1318 was 700 years ago. Not many of us have any connection with 1318. 
They've been waiting and waiting, and it just looks like nothing's happening. Promises, promises, but never fulfillment. And things seem to be, even though the promises talk about a great day of glory, things just seem to be getting worse and worse instead. But then suddenly, and this is why the whole Christmas thing is so precious, suddenly in the midst of this darkness, a messenger appears. And the messenger, you know, might be in the form of, of uh, the angel Gabriel in the case of Mary and Joseph, or the angels appearing out of heaven for the shepherds, or ultimately John the Baptist for most of the people of Israel. But the point is, a messenger is sent from God to say, it's here, it's the day, it has finally come. And it's no wonder that these people rejoiced and were, were, had this relief of joy in meeting this news. Well, so that is how our, the vision corresponds to the reality of what happened with the birth of Christ. But now what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time just thinking through several elements of the story and how they uh, relate to us. What message, what lesson we can learn from them. I'd like to talk about the waste places. I'd like to talk about the feet of the messenger. I'd like to talk about the good news of the message. I'd like to talk about the message itself, our God reigns. And finally, the singings. So let's just focus in on each of these for just a moment. First of all, the waste places. The message came into a place of neediness and desperation. But you know, in the economy of God, waste places are prime real estate. They don't scare him away as they do most investors. In fact, there's something that actually attracts him to them. When God goes shopping for property, he usually purchases places that no one else is interested in. Garbage dumps, toxic wastes, parched deserts, dilapidated shacks, the things that people think of as just a blight on the landscape seem to be the places that God runs to with his mercy. And so, do we see a life in ruins? Maybe a friend, maybe a relative, maybe a work associate, maybe a fellow student, maybe our own lives. Do we see a marriage in ruins? There's no... This God is the one who heals these things. These things are no problem for him. He is in the business of restoring ruins. He loves fixer-uppers. For God has chosen the weak and the lowly and the foolish and the desperate and the despised people of the earth. Christ can transform the most hopeless and desperate places. And that's 
why when there's human need and misery that those people are most of all mankind most ripe to hear the gospel and to hear the message of Christ now let's think about the feet you know we talk about hands which we use to serve the Lord and one another we talk about having our eyes fixed on Jesus we talk about blessing God and man with what comes out of our mouths but here it's the feet that are in the spotlight now in the ancient Middle East where people walked roads of dirt in sandals feet were filthy that's why it's so remarkable that this calls the, you know celebrates the beautiful feet of this messenger I can tell you literally in terms of dirt this this messenger's feet were not beautiful so why this focus on the feet and why call them beautiful well, the beauty of the feet were in the message that the feet brought you see this is how the message gets to them is by the feet of this messenger and this is how the message goes forth from there to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth such a beautiful message makes you want to kiss the feet of the one who brings it and so the feet are beautiful how lovely are the feet of him who brings good news it's the bringing that points to the feet the gospel has feet it is something that gets brought it doesn't just stay there you know Jesus came he didn't stay where he had been he came he moved he walked he traveled he got his feet dirty on the dusty roads of this earth and the Christian faith therefore is a faith that moves that travels it doesn't just stay put the gift was given in Israel but it did not remain in Israel the gift was given to the disciples but it was not to remain merely with the disciples the gift was given to the church but it is not merely to remain in the church it is to be carried out into the world and lived out before the world and proclaimed to all in the world who will hear it perhaps this is why the two most precious celebrations of Jesus are times when his feet were anointed where his feet were washed and expensive ointment poured upon them and perhaps this is why Jesus himself the night before the cross right before the disciples the students 
became the apostles, the sent ones. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. The third thing I'd like to consider together, besides the waste places and the feet, is the good news. Good news of great joy, one translation says. Our ESV says, good news of happiness. And, you know, God convicted me last year when we were going through the sonship material. Through one of the talks where he, the speaker said that we often preach the law as if it's the gospel and the gospel as if it's the law. And I realized that I've been guilty of that. And the point is that if it's good news, if it's good news, it should be proclaimed like it's good news. You know, we communicate differently when we're communicating different things. There's a time to just communicate information. You know, this is what happened to the stock market today, or this is what's going to, the temperature for the day is going to be. It's just information. Then there's a way that we communicate bad news. You know, we, we, don't, we don't communicate bad news in the same way we communicate happy news, for instance. There's a way that we communicate a dire warning. There's a way we communicate good news. Now, the good news of Christ's coming, it involves some bad news. And there are dire warnings connected with the gospel. And yet its defining characteristic is that it's good news of happiness. Good news of great joy. And it should be communicated thus. We are not Moses announcing God's law to people. We are not Jonah pronouncing doom on our enemies. John 3.17 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you know, the same is true for us in a different sense, of course. God did not send us into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through us, through Christ, of course, but through us bringing the message of Christ to the world. And so we must be sure to communicate a message of salvation and deliverance and forgiveness. And we must do so as if, in fact, it is good news. Of course, we cannot publish what we do not possess. We cannot publish peace if we don't possess peace. We cannot proclaim good news of happiness if we are gloomy and miserable in our hearts. And so it may well be that the heart is what needs the work. Now I'd like, the fourth thing I'd like to focus on is this statement in the message of the messenger, our God reigns. And of course, the reason that this message is so precious is that he has freed us, he has delivered us from the grip of sin and death 
an impossible dream has come true. An unbeatable foe has been thrown down. It turns out that Satan, all his evil and all his powers, is no match for the living God. Our God reigns. And this truth must be allowed to burst in upon us when we dwell in darkness and gloom, when we're frightened when we're looking at the world and everything just seems like it's going to pieces. We have the antidote to discouragement and despair. Do you feel like you're in a prison of sickness or weakness or burdens, responsibility or financial pressures? Do you feel humiliated or rejected? Then listen to the voice of the happy messenger as he speeds over the hills. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. But, you know, it doesn't always seem like he does, does it? For long periods of time, even in the Bible, things looked very gloomy. And that's why... The message, our God reigns, is so powerful. Think about the days of Moses and Pharaoh. When Moses was trying to get Pharaoh to to leave, to let his people go. And Pharaoh seemed so strong. And how could he be defeated? But God showed over and over again that he was in control. Our God reigns. And Moses pronounced to Pharaoh, I raised, um, thus saith the Lord, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that my power might be displayed through you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It didn't seem like God reigned when Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, saw that the city was surrounded by the Syrian army. But what he could not see was the fact that thousands of chariots of the heavenly army were surrounding that army. It certainly didn't seem like Israel's God was reigning when the Assyrians conquered the whole Middle East, destroying Judah and then besieging Jerusalem in the days of Sennacherib. But then God said to Sennacherib, I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants are dismayed and confounded. Because you have raged against me, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And then God did it. And he showed that he reigned even over the king of the Assyrian Empire. In each of these stories and in a thousand more, there was this our God reigns moment. When it became obvious that God really was in charge all along. And it's the same in our lives. And we could give story after story 
that would testify to how it, we had moments in our lives where things just looked like, like all was lost and yet God came through in amazing ways and showed that he indeed reigns upon his throne. Just this week, I got a message from Michelle about an amazing Our God Reigns moment that occurred to them this week, right after their team, their other teammates had gone home for good, and they were all alone, and we were praying that God would encourage them, and God did a remarkable thing. I don't have time to tell the story, but I will tell the story. Five or ten minutes after the service is over, I'll call anyone who wants to come up, and I'll tell you the story, because it would take about ten minutes. You know, Jesus went to the cross, but he didn't stay on the cross. On Easter morning, there was this great, our God reigns moment, wasn't there? And so it is with us. If you've read the Bible a lot, you know that there are dozens, maybe even a hundred times where the enemy of God is quoted as saying, you know, God doesn't see. He's forsaken us. He's not going to do anything. And those voices, you know, they speak to us and they, we can hear them. When we're distressed, when it seems like nothing's happening. And sometimes it seems like we have to wait so long. But over and over again, we see in the scriptures that in the end, there is redemption. There is salvation. There is triumph. There is glory. Sometimes God takes a long time to show up. But when he shows up, it's always obvious that it was worth it. This is what puts steel into the backbones of the people of Christ. This is what helps them keep putting one foot in front of the other instead of being crippled by fear, by despair, by insecurity. We are not left to the whims of the Nebuchadnezzars and the Caesars and the Herods and the Pontius Pilots of the world. We are not left to the powers of the bigwigs in Washington, D.C. or in Beijing, China or in Moscow, Russia. We are not left to the whims of an unpleasant employer or to the failings of a sinful husband or wife or to the Grief of a rebellious child. Our God reigns. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. And are counted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing. And emptiness. Do you not know? Do you not hear? He sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. His understanding is unsearchable. That's also in Isaiah 40, like our passage from last week. History is his story. He is its author. And as we sang this morning, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
And then just to close a word about the singing. I love the fact that in verse 9, the waste places of Jerusalem are called to sing. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Folks, we are the waste places of Jerusalem and we're being called to break forth into singing. You know, mainly the Christian songs that I knew before I became a Christian, when I was an atheist, were Christmas carols. I I still haven't quite figured out how I learned Christmas carols, whether it was in school or whether they sang some Christmas carols at my Unitarian church, but whatever, I knew the Christmas carols and I loved them. But I had no idea what they were talking about. But when Christ broke into my life, it was in early December of 1970. And I still remember that Christmas, singing songs that suddenly I could understand for the first time in my life. I'd always sung the songs, but I'd never joined in the worship that those songs were meant to communicate. And it was such a precious privilege for me to join in with others who'd been singing these worship songs for many years. So how about you? Have you joined in the song? Not just to sing the songs, but have you joined in the worship? If not, I invite you to join in today. It doesn't matter what other people think. Don't hold back. Sing away. All creation, join in praising God the Father, Spirit, Son. Evermore your voices raising to the eternal three in one. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. Jesus And the apostles, when they referred to the Lord's Supper, they referred to it as a celebration. That must have seemed very strange that first night when he was saying, you know, this is my body and this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It's like, can you imagine, you know, a loved one about to die and say... You know, here, I want you to remember me with, and celebrate me with this. It doesn't make much sense. But now we understand. Because the death wasn't the end. You know, we sing a song that's based on Isaiah 52. And, uh, it, it, you know, our God reigns. We even sang it about within the last year, I think. And it always troubled me that it didn't go into more depth in Isaiah 52, but that it went right to the cross and the resurrection, and mainly the resurrection. But as I was going through the sermon and preparing it this week, 
occurred to me, man, the resurrection is just the perfect example of, of this. You know, that, that it looked like everything was lost. And then he was raised from the dead. And so now I like even the other verses. Not that I disliked them before, but I'm happy for the song to remain as it is. I even wrote alternative verses that we never used. But anyway, <laughs> let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is a precious privilege for us to celebrate what Christ did on the cross in light of the fact that it didn't end there, but that he was raised by your power from the dead. And you showed that you were not only God, but that you were the king of kings and that you ruled over all things, even over death. Thank you, Lord, that your salvation is so full and so complete. Thank you that a day is coming when, which will make all of our difficult days look more than worth it. We pray for those today, O oh Lord, who have grief in their hearts. We pray that you would cheer them, O oh Lord, with your precious promises. And help us all, Lord, as we come to partake of the Lord Jesus, to do so with gratitude and joy. We pray in his name. Amen.